Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Welcome everyone to our Asian American Theology and Ministry Colloquium with Diane Ujia and Billy Tang. Tonight's topic and the, the title of their presentation is Freedom, a conversation about incarceration and being Asian in the U.S. First, I just want to describe briefly what the Asian American Theology and Ministry Colloquium is. Um, this colloquium provides students and the public with a forum to dialogues and support one another and to offer critical reflection on ministry by Asian Americans, especially in Asian American ecclesial contexts. I have the distinct privilege of introducing our two speakers tonight, and I'll begin with Billy Tang. Billy Tang is co-director of API Rise, formerly incarcerated in the California state prison system for more than two decades. Billy Tang serves as the co-director of API Rise. The journey to this role required him to navigate early childhood as a refugee from Cambodia. At the age of three, when his mother and older brother fled the Khmer Rouge because of their Chinese lineage. Then, like so many immigrant youth, he joined a gang where he, where he found belonging and acceptance. A terrible decision led to a life sentence in prison and an order for deportation and separation from his family until the age of 43. As his life purpose came into focus, his spiritual training deepened and his desire to serve grew. Billy successfully petitioned and received a full and unconditional pardon, a, a set-aside of the deportation order and an acceptance into a union wage apprenticeship program to be an electrician. For many reasons, he chose to leave the union apprenticeship to serve his brothers and sisters in the API community as co-director of API Rise. Billy is also the co-founder of the Black and API Solidarity Group. Welcome, Billy. Next, I would like to introduce Diane Ujia. Minister Diane Ujia's background includes over 20 years of working in the fields of substance abuse, mental health, HIV AIDS, gang prevention intervention, and reentry into multi-ethnic LA County. She has conducted civil rights and public policy advocacy for Asians, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders in California, resulting in the successful passage of state legislation. She serves as board president for Healing Urban Barrios, a gang intervention and reentry program in East Los Angeles. Diane served as an appointee to the California Highway Patrol Citizens Oversight Committee after the 1992 riot, riots and uprising, and as chair of the California Commission on Asian Pacific Islander American Affairs. She has facilitated an array of group processes designed to address the causes and symptoms of division. Diane is currently building solidarity with the black community in Los Angeles, most, with mostly formerly incarcerated sisters, brothers, and siblings. She holds a Master of Divinity degree from Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome, Diane. And Diane, I turn the floor over to you. Thank you, uh, Professor. Thank you, Dr. Chow. Okay, from now on, I'm gonna call you David. Um, can we just acknowledge that David had the vision for this gathering and um, we're so deeply grateful because a lot of people 
don't think about our formerly incarcerated or are our undocumented sisters, brothers, and siblings quite in the ways that that Professor Chow, quite in the ways that David has has given thought to this. Um, I'd like to open in prayer, and then, if possible, we would really appreciate it if those who are online would please introduce yourselves through the chat, your name, your ethnicity. Um, and why you're here, what brings you into this space. But before you start typing, let's come into the silence. Just steady your soul. Lord of mercy, Lord of justice, Lord of love, creator of the universe, our perfect Lord, our perfect savior, we ask your blessing upon each person who's come into this space. You know all that they're bringing into this space, their, their hopes, their pressures, their stressors, their joys. You know all that they're dealing with, contending with, grappling with, and you have a perfect plan. We thank you for this moment where we can come together, learn from each other, and really be intentional, Lord, about coming alongside people who have had to endure conditions that we can't even fathom. Many have been lost. Many have passed away. So we want to grieve with the families who have lost loved ones to the carceral system, through ICE detention, as they have fled war-torn countries, as they have endured racism, poverty, all different types of oppression. We thank you for this time to come together, to learn, to grow, and to be brothers, sisters, and siblings in your perfect justice. These things we pray in your very perfect name, Jesus Christ, Ashe and Amen. Um, while I'm trying to open the PowerPoint, I have to say that every time I get to uh, co-facilitate a workshop with my brother, Billy. I get humbled um, to my core and I might cry. So let me just, warning, I might, I might weep a little bit. And two, um, um, I do live on a street that has an active train. So if I have to mute myself, it's because there's a train. And I do intentionally live on a street with active gang members. So it's a pretty rough neighborhood. So if it gets noisy in the background, um, I will mute myself. Let's take another deep breath together. Let's acknowledge that we are on stolen sacred land. We are all on stolen sacred land that must be returned. So allow your feet to feel the ground underneath you Take a moment to think about people who are behind bars, in facilities, in detention centers. So as you know, everything we do in life has some sort of political, historic, theological, cultural context. And in our context, 
our country, the United States, leads the world in the total number of people who are incarcerated. Let that sink in for a minute. The highest rate in the world. Think about the theological implications of, of what that means. Imagine the systems and structures that are required to make sure that people are incarcerated. Imagine the infrastructure that it takes economically to build the prisons, to staff the prisons, to keep people in line, to make sure that all aspects of the prison um, is making money for a corporation that is using the products that are made for 19 cents, for 30 cents, um, on the backs of men and women that maybe were not necessarily um, sentenced proportionate to their crime. And I'll speak both statistically, empirically, and anecdotally. Um, what David maybe didn't totally mention in my bio, but you could probably deduce, is I've been doing this work a long time. So I do speak from a place of um, experience as well as um, trying to impact the reasons why people are incarcerated, including um, law enforcement, the role of the police um, in terms of who they profile, in terms of those um, people who are targeted for incarceration, and including um, sort of the financial aspect of who can afford an expensive fancy lawyer and those people who cannot. So let's pause for a moment um, and just take a, take a second to think about for yourself, what are some of the theological considerations that come to your mind when you think about our country having the highest rate of incarceration? There's um, a parallel narrative that many of you are familiar with called the model minority myth. It pits us against other communities of color. Um, many of us have struggled with having to internalize whether or not we want to perpetuate that. Um, think about what some of the characteristics are for yourself. What are some of the characteristics of the model minority myth? And how much of it becomes an idol? How much of it do we worship inadvertently um, in our churches? I'll name a few. Uh, economic success, being of a higher so-called economic strata. Educational attainment. The zip code in which you live. And it even, it does, it does affect um, some of the facade of what kind of car do you drive? What kind of clothes do you wear? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of these uh, constructs, I believe, are um, can add to the, the, the idol worship of middle classism. This is an opinion, and it's based in um, my having to deal with uh, internalized classism, middle classism, Americanism in my own Baptist church. Um, sadly, I had to leave because I 
the more I learned about Jesus Christ, the, um, the less I could stay in my current church. So um, maybe one of these days, we can talk about that another time. Think about this. You know, you're gonna hear more about Billy's story as a young man and um, even as a youth, what he had to endure. And while his story is very unique and you will, you will find out some real specific um, obstacles that, that Billy had to overcome, many of our sisters, brothers, and siblings do share the fact that they fled war-torn countries. Many of our sisters and brothers and siblings were, um, in my view, over-sentenced as juveniles. Um, many of our sisters, brothers, and siblings came out of poverty, and so they were not perpetuating the model minority myth, nor have I. I've always digressed from um, fitting into those, those, the checkbox of what it means to be a good middle-class Christian. Many of our young brothers and sisters were incarcerated at the ages of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Many of them were given life or double life sentences. And so thankfully, at least in California, um, there was a bill, Senate Bill um, 260, that, that recognized that brain development for people under the age of 25, and some of us that are older, myself included, but that's a joke, um, brain development um, impairs judgment up until the age of 25. Some of the decision-making consequential thinking that it takes um, to, to weigh out and make wise decisions isn't fully developed, I guess, in the frontal cortex. And so to hold someone accountable um, when they're 14 or even 19 or even 21, um, it can be viewed as um, excessive and um, excessive punishment, cruel and unusual punishment. So thankfully in California, if you committed your crime when you were a juvenile and you served a certain amount of years, somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 years, you could get another hearing. And this is why so many of our brothers and sisters were released. But can you imagine being released in, in your 30s and 40s? The world, how much it's changed from the time you were 16 to the time you're 40, 45. Um, what we know statistically, at least in California, is that most of the um, Asians and Pacific Islanders that we deal with have longer sentences than even their black and brown brothers and sisters. So let that sink in. I don't know how it is in other parts of the country, but in California, um, they are over-sentenced. Many of our brothers and sisters and siblings have parents who are uh, only, they only, their home language is not English. So um, they're also struggling with grappling with um, the legal system and how daunting that is, not to mention all of the trauma that they're still working through fleeing countries or dealing with poverty and uh, not knowing the language. Whew. Let's take a minute, let that sink in. By the way, um, the two gentlemen in that photo are real API RISE members. Toby is 19 on the left and Mr. Lee is 75. You can only imagine their stories. And you don't have to imagine them. You can watch one of our productions, which we'll talk about later. Um, 
Toby fled, Cam his parents fled Cambodia, and Mr. Lee fled Korea. Oh, I talked about this already. Imagine doing time, and then once you're released, you, you have to go through a reentry process, socialization process, um, but most of the reentry services cater to uh, black and brown communities. And that, that's not to put any shade or, or, or be uh, despaired about, about our black and brown brothers and sisters. Clearly there's a need and, and we are in, we're in deep solidarity with our black and brown brothers and sisters. Um, and statistically we understand why, but yet and still our people are, are East Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asian, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, they have some cultural considerations that require specific kind of um, care and specific kind of um, interventions, uh, including language, including understanding um, certain kinds of culturally based trauma, including um, understanding authority, uh, protocols, all kinds of different um, socialization, acculturation types of uh, factors. And most reentry programs, I'm just keeping it real, uh, they don't deal with us very well. Almost sometimes where some of our people feel alienated and isolated um, when they're released. So API Rise was founded by a, um, an amazing a brother named Duck Ta, a lawyer named Paul Jung, a Pacific Islander brother named David Kupahia, and um, an ally sister named Tracy Ishigo. Because they're like, when people get out, who's going to welcome them home? And who's going to come alongside them um, and help them adjust, right? So just let that sink in. The sister brothers and siblings that you see in this photo are also API RISE members, and they all have um, just remarkable stories of, of violation and, and, and horrific um, forms of, of, of oppression that they had to overcome before, during, and after, um, and yet have had as many stories of joy and victory and uh, triumph. So just take a look at those faces. Take a moment now and just reflect. Who would Jesus be aligned with? Would Jesus be aligned with those who have been incarcerated, profiled, over-sentenced, detained for not having their papers, or would Jesus be aligned with the corporations who profit, the systems and structures that feed into keeping people marginalized? Who would Jesus be aligned with? Where would Jesus be in this gap? One of the major aspects of API RISE's mission is to humanize those who have been dehumanized, to destigmatize um, the reasons why people are incarcerated, um, and to um, 
remove some of the, or at least reduce some of the shame that comes with that. So we're going to take a moment now. Um, before we hear Billy's story, um, I'm going to invite us to all just take a breath together. And just prepare your heart and your mind as we listen to my brother Billy Tang's story. After you hear from Billy, we'll open it up for questions, answers, conversation, comments, and reflections, because we want to learn from you too. And um, yeah, I would invite you to jot down notes if you want to, um, but mostly just to listen with your heart. So I'm going to be on mute now, and um, let's hear from Brother Billy Tang. Hi everyone. Uh, I guess good evening, right in the East Coast. <laughs> it's still afternoon here. Um, thank you, Diane, uh, for sharing uh, a brief uh, summary of um, of the situation or the dilemma. Uh, I'll share my story real quick. Um, uh, I was born in uh, the early 70s, 1974, uh, to be exact, and uh, I was born uh, to Chinese parents. Uh, my father was a Chinese professor uh, that taught in, uh, that was a scholar over there in Cambodia. Uh, and uh, my grandparents uh, immigrated to Cambodia during the Cultural Revolutions. So that's how we end up uh, in Cambodia. Um, in 1976, the Kamaruch uh, regime uh, took over control of Cambodia, and they began uh, the campaign of, um, uh, I guess, their you know genocide campaigns of uh, trying to, uh, in their views, uh, make Cambodia whole. Um, when I was one and a half years old. Uh, the Kamruch uh, soldiers barged into our family home, uh, accused my father of uh, speaking Chinese uh, to conspire against their regime. And right then and there, he proceeded to uh, beat up my father uh, in front of us. Um, I was only one and a half years old at that time. And uh, they just dragged him away in the middle of the night and we never saw him again. Um, after that, we were displaced in our home and uh, was sent to um, a labor camp uh, where for the next three and a half years, uh, my, my mother, uh, my older brother and I, uh, you know, went through harsh treatment. My mother was sent to labor, uh, um, working the rice fields. My older brother was sent to child labor camp. My older brother is four years older than me, so he would be like five, five and a half years old. And, you know, I was still a toddler at the time, uh, left to the care of strangers, uh, elderly that really had no relation uh, with me. Uh, for the next three and a half years, um, you know, little, the little memories that I had was like a lot of times of starvations, uh, of being uh, neglect. And because um, a lot of times my mom couldn't make it to, uh, you know, couldn't make it back uh, to take care of me. So. Uh, she often wondered, like, you know, if I was still alive or, you know, what happened to me. Uh, so for the next three years, we live in that uh, 
harsh environment until um, 1979 when the Vietnamese uh, soldier invaded Cambodia. And my mother saw opportunity to uh, escape and uh, with other refugees that uh, that was uh, immigrating towards uh, Thailand. So for the next three months, uh, as my mom often told me, um, she carried me, dragged my older brother, and um, start walking to the border. It took her about three and a half months uh, with other refugees. And I was so young at the time. Um, I think I was probably like four years old, four and a half years old. Um, you know, during my time crossing the border, um, you know, I was just suffering through a lot of uh, uh, illness and uh, being malnutrition and weak that, you know, throughout the borders, I didn't even recognize that, you know, a dead bodies that was blown up by minefields, uh, this dismembered body parts. I didn't even knew that, you know, it was uh, a horrific scene, you know, but because I never even you know, had any kind of chance to even um, learn about, you know, uh, that aspect of life. Uh, we immigrated to, uh, uh, we reached the border of Thailand where we were, uh, taken in by the, the Americans, uh, uh, soldiers, and uh, there we became uh, refugee uh, immigrants and stayed in Thailand uh, refugee camp for about six months. And then they transferred us to uh, Philippines uh, refugee camps. We waited for about one and a half years to be uh, sponsored to the United States. Um, I remember in 1980, um, we got to the United States uh, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And, um, you know, even then, it, uh, you know, everything was very foreign to me. I didn't really comprehend the whole uh, situation on what's going on. Um, we stayed at a home uh, that had three other refugee families just living in the home. And um, after about one year, uh, you know, we moved to San Diego, California. Uh, and by that time, my mom already uh, uh, met my stepdad. So, you know, I remember around six years old, seven years old, I was in San Diego, um, California, and really didn't really know what's going on. I know that I had to go to school and didn't even understand the language. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's how I got the name Billy. Um, because I, you know, my original name was Houth, and I think, you know, I could only imagine Houth was too hard for folks to pronounce. So, you know, Billy the Kid or Billy, you know, probably, you know, uh, was given to me. Um, we stayed at San Diego for another one and a half years before we moved to uh, Monterey Park, California, uh, in Monterey Park, Los Angeles County. Uh, there, I. Uh, pretty much started my school, third grade. And uh, and I always remember at that time that, you know, my parents, uh, my mother and my stepdad always had to work. Oftentimes, like, you know, I'm seven years old and my older brother's probably 10 years old or 11 years old. And we're often left home, you know, by ourselves when they worked, right? Um, so as we go to school and, you know, we learn about, um, the cultures, uh, and you know, um, we get bullied. You know, like a lot of uh, immigrants that are uh, refugee immigrants that can't speak English well, and 
Um, so we, I stayed in Maury Park pretty much, uh, you know, until a time of rest. Um, but in that time, I moved to another uh, uh, location, another school. And then, uh, you know, fourth grade, uh, I began to start making friends. And uh, uh, fifth grade came, I began to, like, you know, feel more accepted in like the, the friend atmosphere outside of home because, you know, at home, I was just taught to be, um, you know, just uh, be be a good little boy, you know, listen, uh, be obedient. We would never talk about anything. Uh, so even the dinner, we would never have any conversation, just kind of eat and, uh, you know. Um, and I just remember, um, you know, feeling very, I was quiet, you know. I was uh, the, the model, you know, good kid that my mom wanted me to be. Um, but however, when I get to school and start hanging out with friends, you know, I, I felt that I had more room to express myself to, um, and then, you know, people, you know, liked me and uh, um, I felt a little, you know, like acceptance and embrace. And in Mario Park around that time, I'm talking about like 80s, you know, um, it was a, a split between uh, his Asians and Latino communities, right? Um, so us Asians, uh, which mostly consists of like refugees, uh, Vietnamese, Chinese refugees, Cambodian refugees, Chinese, uh, we often hang around together, right? Because we share similar cultures. We understood each other. So, you know, most of the time our parents are never home. So, you know, we get to like roam around the streets and um, um, at age, 12 right um my brother my older brother uh he start he ran away and uh started joining gangs right and you know up until then i looked up to my older brother because uh you know i just you know we grew up together and i felt like a lot of times he took care of me uh growing up um so when he left home i felt more alone because i didn't have no one to talk to and my only space like i could really be myself was you know among peers friends who are you know we would hang out uh, donut shops we would you know um, just goof around you know ride bikes everywhere and um, hang out late at night um, so when I got to high school you know as we grow those friends became more um, you know more of like the you know I should say back then around late 80s early 90s like the in crowd was kids was that was like ditching class, you know, going to smoke and then, you know, next to a, a, a donut shop or hanging out. And, you know, at the times, like, I felt, hey, you know, these are the, the people that I hang around with. And, uh, you know, I want to be accepted by them. I want to, you know, be embraced and I want to feel a sense of belonging. So, you know, naturally, I gravitates there and you know um my thoughts like hey you know my older brother was you know came a gang so it's like it wasn't even to me it was like all right not even a question of uh should i or shouldn't i just knew that i'll be a gang member um, and um you know we grew up in an area where uh you know my park you know they consider a good city now but back then it, there, there's a lower income uh, area where 
you know, we didn't have nice house. We were renting houses. We were um, uh, a lot of times, you know, my mom, my my parents worked very hard, right? And um, and they're you know, as most immigrant families, they're pretty tight with the spending, right? So when I ask, hey, you know, I want to buy like a Nike shoe, they're like, you know, get a shoe from Payless. It's only like twelve bucks, right? So. Uh, but, you know, when you go to school, you see kids, you know, wearing Nikes and, you know, you just want to be a part of that. Right. So uh, eventually I start, you know, uh, committing crimes and um, hanging out with people that are into that lifestyle. And as I grew, um, you know, I felt more accepted. and I felt more belong. And um, I just felt a sense of wanting to prove myself more. Uh, but however, uh, you know, I think when I got to uh, after I graduated from high school like barely graduated I went through like the whole continuation school right uh, in order to even you know barely graduate um, right after high school I was recruited uh, to join the military so I went to boot camp uh, but in the, the boot camp space where there weren't too many Asian I was probably like the only Asian in my platoon and right away when I got to the boot uh, the reception you know um, you know I heard, you know, like, wah, or, hey, Chinaman, or, and, you know, I've, I've never heard that my whole life until I got there, and it made me feel like very, um, uh, like an outcast, right? Like, you know, I'm being made fun of, and um, so I graduated from boot camp after uh, about six months, um, and when I went back home, I just felt more sense of like, hey, um, this is my community. Uh, you know, I don't belong in the, in the militaries. Um, so I dive more into my gang. And at this time, I wanted to prove myself more. Uh, I wanted to uh, feel more accepted, you know, uh, from the, you know, from what I thought was my uh, family at the time. And what I thought was like, felt a sense of love. Um, so at age 19, uh, a plan was brought up for us to uh, make some money and uh, it was involved uh, robbing a tour bus that's going to Vegas. And at the time in my own distorted thinking, I felt, you know what, I'm, you know, my intention is not to hurt, physically harm anybody. Uh, we'll just take the money and we'll leave. And so we carried out the crime uh, because the bus move, uh, you know, we were charged with kidnap robbery. Um, so at age 19, I was uh, uh, placed in uh, Men's Central Jail, uh, LA County Jails, um, and spent 18 months fighting my case. And through which time uh, in the county jail, uh, it, was, it was a very harsh uh, reality for me also, because oftentimes they said, if you could survive LA County Jails, you could pretty much survive any, uh, you know, any, anywhere in the carceral system. So for 18 months, we went to trial. Uh, I had a state appointed lawyers because I couldn't, my family couldn't afford a lawyer, right? Um, and at the end of the 18 months, uh, I was sentenced to life plus life plus 14 years, eight months consecutive. And, uh, you know, even the argument was like, I never, you know, received any kind of, uh, I never had a record before. I never had a prior arrest. Uh, the judge didn't care. and. Um, he even said that, oh, I'm showing mercy by sending you or giving you a two life sentence, a consecutive life sentence. 
So um, at age 20, um, I was, I was uh, sent to a maximum security prison. Um, and I think during the mid nineties, it was like a huge explosion of, uh, uh, you know, the incarceration of, they were building a lot of prison. Uh, the first prison I went to um, was a maximum and it was a brand new prison. I was the first one in my cell. Um, so, you know, I, I spent my 21st birthday there and, um, uh, and I remember thinking, you know, when I stepped into the cell, when the door closed, there was a sense of like despair, like, what am I going to do for, you know, the rest of my life? Because back then, California laws, if you have even one life sentence, you weren't even getting out because there was a no, no parole policy amongst, uh, um, you know, the politicians over there. Um, so I served my times and I think during, well, during my incarcerations, I realized that, you know, my mom's was, you know, I've so much, I've caused her so much pain and so much uh, suffering because even when I was in the county jail, she would take the bus at night to come visit me. And that's when I realized like, you know, she really, um, you know, she really cared and loved me, you know, not, um, and you know, it changed my way of thinking like, all right, you know, since I'm in jail, I don't want to continue to hurt her. So, uh, I'm going to try to behave my best, but, you know, survival in jail means, you know, you can't be weak. You have to uh, defend yourself. And, you know, I, I remember when I first got to county right away, I start um, sharpening um, uh, uh, a toothbrush to make weapons because I had to defend myself. At the time I was only five, five, 105 pounds. So uh, I couldn't show weakness, you know, and, um, you know, at 19, while, you know, kids are going off to college, you know, I'm learning how to survive and defend myself amongst um, grown men. Um, so when I went to a prison system, uh, you know, in a maximum security where there's, you know, all people of high profile crimes that, you know, couldn't go into a low level, that's where they were sent to maximum security level four prison. Uh, and in there, I, you know, I learned what I could learn to survive. You know, if someone went bigger to approach me, I had no choice but to, you know, um, def you know, not defend myself, but in order for me not to look weak, you know, I have to really um, show that toughness, show that, you know, you can't mess with, you can't mess with me. Um, for the next three years, I, you know, I did what I can to survive. And finally I was, uh, my, my points drop, I was sent to a lower uh, security prisons. And uh, in the level three prison, I was able to, um, you know, it was more laxer and they had more programs, right? Programs meaning they're offering more self-help programs, educational groups uh, if we could attend. So I started uh, attending, um, groups, self-helps, and uh, even took uh, attended uh, college. Uh, I enrolled in, uh, to get my AA. Uh, and, you know, throughout the, the course of uh, my prison term, of course, I've, I've learned, you know, uh, I've learned a lot about, you know, 
my situation and my circumstances, what got me there, right? Um, and I really do believe like, you know, my one of my first courses was like sociology, which really opened my eyes to just a bigger, a world bigger than just, you know, the, the, the environment that I grew up, right? So as I start taking more classes and attending a, a self-help group, um, you know, I start to learn about, you know, the impact of my crimes, right? Um, how, yeah, I didn't intend for no one to get hurt physically and no one got hurt physically, but I traumatized people. I, you know, took their sense of security when I went and robbed the bus, robbed them of their money and robbed them of their, um, you know, emotional security, you know? So I understand that and, um, you know, and that realization is just, uh, allowed me to just, you know, took the path of transformations um, and really took it seriously, uh, not just going through it, but learning about, you know, the impact, ripple effect, uh, ripple effect of my actions. Um, after serving 21 years, I was uh, offered opportunity to, so, uh, you know, from level three, then I have to go to a level two, um, and, uh, you know, that's when I saw people that were going home, right? Uh, like Diane mentioned, uh, SB 260 passed and uh, 261 was for folks that are 18 to uh, 21. And I fall into the category of uh, SB 261. But when I went in front of, uh, appear in front of the commissioner, the pro board commissioner, the law didn't take effect yet. It's in the process. Um, but however, I, when I, when I got to that stage, I was um, really deep into my transformation and really understood, uh, uh, you know, the, my the cause of factors and uh, you know what led me to you know be that, you know, that nineteen year old, uh, you know, boy that, you know, committed the crime uh, that day, and um, and a lot of times like understanding that you know trauma plays like a huge role in that right uh you know at age one to four you know i couldn't you know i i didn't have that mental maturity to learn what normal kids learn and uh, you know i felt during that span i felt you know weak i felt um abandoned um and you know that 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 trauma, you know, impacted me throughout my whole life. Um, and just by learning through meditations and through taking numerous help, you know, I learned that. And I was to, able to explain that when I went in front of the, the commissioners. Um, and I was, uh, uh, you know, my first time was uh, given a pro, found suitable for pro. Um, so when it comes time for me to parole, uh, it didn't end there because I came to the United States um, and never became a citizen. Um, I was handed over to ICE detention as an immigration uh, uh, custom enforcement. And I served another four and a half months uh, in ICE detention. Um, and in which time I really thought that I was gonna get deported. I really had no hope of fighting because the immigration law is um, is vague and really this, you know, people don't usually beat the immigration system. Uh, fortunately, at that time, um, you know, Cambodia didn't recognize me as their citizen, so I was released. And when I came home, 
you know, uh, I was in a transition housing and I went to the, um, you know, I start going to um, re-entries or uh, being involved with our re-entry organizations to like serve the communities. And, uh, and at the time I did want to like give back and, um, you know, my first uh, re-entry organization was the, the Anti-Receive Coalition uh, ARC. Um, it wasn't until, you know, a few months later that one of the, uh, the brothers in my transition housing introduced me to API Rise. And, um, you know, I went to API Rise and, you know, I saw that, you know, there were guys that were formerly incarcerated. Uh, but I also saw like, you know, communities of like lawyers, students um, that are really supportive, right? It didn't, they didn't care, um, you know, what my past, they didn't care how I got there. They just embraced me and, um, uh, you know, it made me feel uh, uh, very accepted and very um, valued, right? As, you know, as someone's coming back because a lot of times in the, the API space, or even in the Asian communities, right? I carry that burden of like guilt and shame, uh, you know, and the stigma of, you know, I've been, uh, I've made a mistake and, uh, you know, I won't be accepted because I will always be judged by my past, but you know, in the API Rise space, uh, it wasn't like that. So I start uh, continue to uh, be involved with API Rise, you know, uh, volunteering. Um. However, when Trump took office, I was uh, re-detained because his policy was he wanted, you know, to deport all criminals. And even at the time, I'm not, I wasn't a criminal, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was a returning citizen, right? Or a member of society, uh, but, you know, that didn't matter. Uh, so I was re-detained really um, for the next six months where I was flown across uh, from California to Arizona to Texas, Louisiana. And, you know, for those of you who um, have fear of flying, imagine you flying with cuff, right? Uh, cuffed up from your wrist to your waist, to your ankles. Um, you know, really feeling helpless and really feeling. So there was a number of us that went through that whole situation. I think at the time it was uh, 97 uh, uh, folks. And in that I saw um, an 83 year old grandpa also that was uh, sleeping in a concrete floor because the place that they put us was it's kind of like a tuna box. There was no bed. Uh, we were held for over 24 hours um, with just a couple concrete benches. And, um, you know, it was, it's a very like disheartening situation to witness, right? And, to, um, and, uh, and then I said to myself that time, I was like, you know, if I ever got out to this situation, I'll, you know, I'll, you know, I'll do what I can to uh, be more vocal or to just let the world know that you know, how inhumane um, the immigration system was. Um, so fortunately, um, you know, the, the lawyers organization, uh, Asian American Advancing Justice and Asian Law Caucus filed injunction, which stopped my, uh, um, which stopped me from really boarding a plane back to Cambodia. I was, at the time, I was three days away from boarding that plane. Um, so the junction allowed me to reopen my case and to, you know, continue to fight. Um, 
after six months, uh, I was bailed out. And um, yeah, I got more involved with policy advocacy on uh, anti-deportations uh, uh, and um, just, you know, sharing my experience with uh, communities of, you know, how messed up, you know, how unjust and how inhumane um, the system of immigration is, right? The continual process of pu punishing folks that, you know, have earned their, um, their date, have earned their freedom, but, but because of, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, lack of uh, education, lack of financial, uh, um, and because, you know, we just, no one taught, no one told us that, oh, uh, you had to become a citizen or, you know, growing up, I just thought that, hey, you know, I'm just a member of the society. You know, I was allowed to join the military at age 18. Like, um, it never crossed my mind that, you know, I would be, you know, be deported, you know, uh, one day. And um, so long story short, fortunately for me, um, uh, Right before Governor Brown left office, I filed a petition to uh, for a pardon. And you know, on Christmas Eve, uh, 2018, uh, I received my pardon. And I always tell people this day that you know that's that's the best Christmas gift ever. <laughs> um, so, you know, that allowed me to uh, stay with my family, to allow me to plan for my futures, to allow me to um, serve my communities, right and I continue to uh, do this because, um, you know, um, I'm fortunate to be here and I know there's so much more folks that are struggling, that are suffering, uh, that is going through what I went through. Um, and for me, it's just, um, you know, uh, you know, this is, yeah, this is where I belong, right? This is my home, um, my communities. And um, um, yeah, my passion is to uh, help others and to help, you know, my brother, sister and siblings that's struggling. Uh, we do the stuff we do because, you know, it needs to be done and someone gotta do it. So thank you all. Um, I, I'm glad I, <laughs> I'm glad that I won't, I'm not able to see y'all because I'll be so nervous. <laughs> I still have uh, straight, uh, you know, uh, get nervous speaking in front of crowds, even though I do numerous times, but, uh, um, yeah, just to share more, it's just, you know, struggling with, um, still struggling right uh technology is still uh, a challenge and uh i could imagine folks that's getting out that you know barely coming back home like never even touch a phone for you know decades and um you know having to navigate uh re-entry then having to um deal with immigrations and you know 
Um, so yeah, uh, this work is, it's not work. It's, it's just something that I'm passionate about doing and, you know, so yeah, thank you for showing up to listen and, um, I learned from you all too. So hopefully one day, um, I'll meet some of you and, you know, we could uh, sit down and have like a face-to-face -face discussion or, you know, just talk, have conversations. Thank you, y'all. Thank you, brother. So, um, I don't know how you all are feeling, but let's take a minute to take a deep breath. Um, I, I'm very interested to hear if people have thoughts about what I commented on, the idol worship of middle-classism, and I believe that middle-classism and Americanism are the tenets that some Christians inadvertently, I don't think anyone intends to, inadvertently perpetuate that, that keeps people like Billy and Kanaka and Tway and Tin and Tony and Van and Rose and many of our brothers and sisters pipelining through this system only to come out and be recuffed, to be reincarcerated for not having a piece of paper. So I, I invite you fellow theologians to process out loud. David, how do you want to facilitate this part? How much time do we want to spend on Q&A now, Diane? Is there more? Is there let's more? Let's do a good. Yeah, yeah. Let's do let's do a good solid five or six minutes now. We'll, okay. we'll kind of weave it in. Got it. So let's let's open it up to the Q&A chat. On the right-hand side, for those on AirMeet, you can go and identify Q&A, and people can begin to uh, place their questions there. And for those that can upvote the questions that resonate with them, that'll prioritize them. And I'm also looking in the room here at Princeton Seminary. We have a few people. If there are um, questions from the floor here at Princeton Seminary, you can say them out loud, and I'll repeat them for Billy and Diane. And I might say, given how Billy has shared so personally uh, and movingly, we might uh, initially direct our questions and our comments towards Billy. And then we yes. can talk about the systemic issues uh, as well. So um, Susan from Seattle states, I may have missed this, but I'm interested in how your parents and extended family reacted were there people who helped? Um, are you referring to when uh, I got incarcerated or um, my, my mom was always there, um, relatives, you know, you know, what I did was embarrassing to them, right? And, you know, in the Asian communities that, you know, the shame factor, um, you know, I only remember that, you know, my mom was the one that 
really came to visit me and supported me, uh, going to every trial, every court hearings. Uh, yeah. So Billy, there's, your story was um, difficult to hear given um, the trauma, but I just wanna get some of the facts straight in my own understanding of the narrative. So because you were incarcerated between ages 18 and 21, SB 261 allowed you to be paroled earlier. Um, but when you were paroled, ICE then picked you up and were preparing to deport you. So I'm just thinking, why didn't ICE intervene earlier? If they wanted to deport you in the first place, why send you to prison? How does that work? Yeah, I, I think at the time, um, it was the policy was more geared towards punishment. Um, they want to make sure that I just, you know, I did prison term, um, you know, that, you know, according to their justice, that I served my time and um, in the United States, right? If they were to send me to another country, um, uh, they probably felt that that's letting me go too easily. Um, Interesting. I see. Um, I'm scanning the room and we're also going to look through the chat for people who can place questions. I think something came in on the Q&A. So um, Susan comments, your mom's presence was a big deal. Thank you. Uh, Darcy asks, what influenced you to return to the U.S. after being, well, I don't think, um, so Darcy, I don't think Billy was deported. There was an intervention. Um, I think the legal, the Asian American Legal Fund helped prevent the deportation. He was three days away from being deported. And then Sonia Lee from Indiana says, people often think that mass incarceration is a black issue, but it is obviously not. What are the particular struggles that Asian Americans face when dealing with the prison system or trying to fight against the logic of punishment? Um, so, you know, Diane and or Billy could take this question if, if you can see it. I can read it again if you would like. Yeah, um, you know, during my time, my whole time in the prison system, uh, we were considered others. We weren't even Asians. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, we would um, take care of one another, support one another. Our number was, uh, you know, was small compared to uh, the Blacks and Latinos. But uh, easily, you know, we have a good uh, 30 to... Uh, average of like 30 uh, API folks, right, um, in each yards. Um, yeah, and there, you know, the, the, the continued punishment is culture, right? We wouldn't, you know, I never really got to use a real chopstick or I never ate my, um, the, the, you know, Asian food. Um, uh, visiting was hard for my mom. She hardly could you know, she didn't really speak English. So, you know, she wouldn't, didn't understand a lot of times like what they were asking of her. Uh, she didn't drive. So transportation was uh, hard. She had to uh, hit rides with, uh, I mean, catch a ride with um, other uh, Asian families that was going to visit me. So every time she would come, uh, yeah, it was always uh, through another uh, family that was incarcerated with me. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, we had to go through the whole uh, uh, 
struggle of not being able to embrace our culture inside the prison system. Not, uh, and not only that, oftentimes when, uh, you know, were, there were racial riots against like the Asians, uh, we were really outnumbered, like, um, you know, 70 to one or sometimes, uh, yeah, uh, you know, imagine just 20 folks uh, you know, being attacked by, you know, 200, 300 folks in the yard. Um, you know, and we go through that in the county jail too, so. Before I ask Josephina's question, let me offer an observation and question for you, Billy. As you were telling your story, all the twists and turns, you're paroled, and then there is, um, that was an early Christmas gift, but then there was the um, potential for deportation, then the Trump uh, legislation that further snagged you back into the system. It's like you couldn't get out of the system. The system was a black hole sucking you back into it, sucking your life into its into its thing. And yet I was observing how calm you are telling your story. And I think that's a real tribute to the person you are, the, the character you have, your inner resilience and resources, because I, I try to imagine myself in your shoes. There is no way I could tell that story with the calmness that you have shared it with us. How, tell us a little bit more about your personal journey you've alluded to, um, the sociology course, the self-help group, but what is the inner journey that you've gone on to come to this place of, it seems like relative peace? Because I know many people living in the suburbs who have much less peace, at least from what I can tell, than you have. So can you just comment a little bit about your inner journey? And this is one of the things that I love about my sister Diane is she's intentionally built in deep breathing, um, creating space, because I know spirituality matters to Diane as well. So just comment a little bit more about this, Billy. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I, I owe that to uh, meditation. Uh, the last five years of my incarcerations, um, you know, for a long time, they didn't allow Buddhist uh, uh, monks to go into prisons, right? Because the chaplain was run by Protestant or Catholic uh, 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 priest or reverend. And um, they were really uh, biased towards uh, uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhism, right? So when I got to a level two, I uh, encountered um, this organization called International Bodhisattva Sangha, which came and really didn't taught us, well, they gave us uh, literatures to read, but mainly they taught meditations. And uh, through meditations, I was able to just, you know, reflect on my past experience and uh, accept the things that um, that happened um, as, uh, you could say, karma, right? And, um, and really just, you know, trying to understand uh, myself, like who I was, you know, as a kid, uh, who I was, you know, during that time uh, as a person, and um, and just uh, through that meditation space, uh, it allowed me to be calm. I was able to meditate in a, a dormitory setting where 
people walked around and I would meditate for 30 minutes, not even um, worry about I would get attacked because, um, you know, yeah. And then I, I, at the time, I already found like the, the inner uh, peace, the inner freedom, uh, which just accepting reality. And, uh, and you know, um, my experience uh, define who I am today, but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not cuffed by the, um, you know, by the mistakes that I made. Um, and uh, yeah, I believe uh, just education, um, meditations and uh and i read a lot of books uh while i was in there so <laughs> uh but yeah i just you know being in the space and just you know sharing sharing um um truthfully and sharing um you know with the with the mind to just you know allowing people to just learn from my experience. And uh, uh, I think that helps me. That's really beautifully said. Um, thank you for sharing about the spiritual practices of meditation, Billy. I'm gonna just um, adapt Josephina's comment. So Billy, before, so when you were, let's say in high school or were a teenager, did you find that there were groups, perhaps religious groups or spiritual groups that could provide support or did you feel that there weren't many resources uh, of support available to you uh, while you were a teenager? Um, I think I think there were, but it wasn't um, intentionally reached out. Um, mm. I think that you know during that time, uh, especially in the Asian communities, right? Like really you know, no one wants to acknowledge that, um, you know, their community has issue, right? Um, like that ended up feeding to like the model minority myth, right? We were expected to, you know, excel in school and, you know, we were expected to like be a good kid, right? And, you know, I defy all that, uh, you know, my model minority myth. Um, so I think, you know, although there were, but they were not focused on like our, our communities, really. Diane, I wanna hand it back to you. Why don't you please continue? Let's do this. Um, I'm gonna power through this really fast. What does API Rise do? How do we respond? And again, Billy, I'm gonna do this really fast. You imagine um, sisters and brothers being incarcerated. So they're in prison. They're in jail, they're in detention. We're hoping to develop and build out a prison in-reach program. We have a very modest prison in-reach program now, but we want it to become more robust. And um, we want to make sure that more and more people know that they have family. There are many people who are estranged from their family, who are cut off from their family because they're so ashamed. So we really want to pour into those who don't have any real biological family through prison inreach. But the other aspect of prison inreach is to, um, two things. One, provide support for people who have what's called LWAP, life without parole, because they're not getting out. Two, we wanna provide support for those who can get out through their um, board uh, hearing prep. And three, um, as they're beginning to transition out, 
we want to come alongside them so that when they walk out those gates, we're ready and they're ready because reentry can be a very, very stressful transition. I have friends who um, have secretly shared that sometimes prison's easier. They've done, you know, they, they've lived an automated prescribed life for, for two to three decades. It's hard to adjust. Um, part of the way we're gonna we're gonna pour into these sisters, brothers, and siblings is through something called member and community care. These brothers and sisters have been case managed and supervised and corrected for so long that we're not going to call it case management. We're going to call it care, care support. And as we think about um, what that means concretely, that means we're going to link them to psychosocial, spiritual, and healing practices. We're going to help them navigate technology and all of these daunting systems of even getting your ID and getting uh, your resume together for jobs. There's just a whole array of survival skills that, that we want to accompany our sisters and brothers and siblings with. So we do do that. But to the point that's been raised a few times, um, we are not at odds with our black and brown brothers and sisters at all. We really want to have solidarity as we do public policy advocacy to overturn systems or to dismantle systems that keep us all oppressed. So sometimes on a local, state, and federal level, we will be working with our black and brown brothers and sisters. In California, just two days ago, a law was passed that enables folks who, who have been clean from um, any type of law enforcement contact for four years, their records can be expunged. Because if your record is not expunged, you have to check that box of having a criminal record for your apartments, for employment, for credit. I mean, there's, there's over 20,000 obstacles that people who have a record have to overcome. And, and letting, allowing your records to be expunged could be very liberating and open up a whole new universe of opportunity for our people. Um, and that segues into the policy advocacy. So one of my concerns about the so-called church is we often put the onus only on the individual to repent and to like do what they need to do to, um, to, to rehabilitate. Um, but candidly, I think the church might want to think about some of the systems and structures and the values and beliefs that have contributed to why these brothers and sisters are incarcerated. So rather than just reacting to the individual, what is it the church doing to get certain people elected to make sure that certain laws are passed or, or not passed? Um, and that's crucial to impacting history, context, system structures, and it builds solidarity with the, the people on the margins. And candidly, um, I don't think that Jesus just walked with the marginalized. He was marginalized. He was marginalized. So that part, but we'll talk about, we'll exegete that later because I went to Fuller. So I know those five syllable words. And then finally, sadly, at least in California, getting money for a nonprofit like um, API Rise, it ain't easy. It is not easy. Government grants are stupid and I'll explain why. Um, Government grants are usually stupid and short-sighted, and I think they inadvertently perpetuate recidivism because they're in such a hurry to get our people jobs that you jump over trauma, you jump over family reunification, you just jump over all of these other needs 
And so we, we hastily placed people in, in low-wage, low-end jobs, and uh, they recidivate. They don't have the coping skills to deal with their, their supervisors. They have all this racial trauma. So we, we've had people who get triggered just by certain types of people. All that to say, um, API RISE, it's our most modest but most aspirational program, which is social enterprise, where we can make our own money for not only our members, but as a source of revenue. So API Rise, you know, we, we, we go to rallies, we go to protests, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. I believe that that protest is a form of worship. It's the way I pray with my entire body. Um, and that the, the value of we belong to each other is not abstract. So I'm going to invite you theologians to, to reflect on what scripture comes to mind for you. What is God stirring up for you? Are there any biases to acknowledge and release? Um, I'll, I, I have to keep this 100. As a middle-class Japanese-American who speaks English, even though my parents and my, and my parents were incarcerated during World War II, so I understand their trauma of looking like the enemy alongside 125,000 other Japanese-Americans, most of which were, were American citizens. I have to acknowledge that when Billy Tang and any immigrant came on to my turf in high school uh, as a Japanese American who spoke English, um, I didn't want to have anything to do with my refugee and immigrant brothers and sisters because Americanism made me feel like you're a threat to the little degree of acceptance that I have for being an American, and I'm sick of being asked, what are you, where'd you learn to speak English, blah, blah, blah. So many, many Japanese and other Chinese and like third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation American-born Asians, we were, we were jerks. I was, I was super cold. So I had biases, not recognizing that at the end of the day, um, we, we belong to each other. And at the end of the day, in our context, no one's distinguishing between whether you were born here or not when it comes to anti-Asian Asian hate and violence. So that's another workshop. Um, it is. Diane, let's, let's pause here for a second because <laughs> I think these, these questions you've listed deserve engagement. Okay. So let's, let's engage. Let's engage. Let's give it a good five minutes here and we'll let the spirit lead. I'm just going to look at the faces in the room we can look at the chat box uh, and we welcome just people to, you know, this is a free space. After, yes, hearing, after hearing Billy bear his heart, we can definitely share our thoughts. And so what scripture comes to mind? What is God stirring up for you? Um, are there any biases to acknowledge and release? What role is your church playing to offset, perpetuate, or dismantle the systems and structures that contribute to mass incarceration? How is the individual narrative problematic in and of itself? We just want to open this space up for conversation. Yes. Feel free to answer any of these people. It doesn't, you know, not in any particular order. <clears throat> Very, uh, happy that I'm also very passionate about. So I feel like I have a lot of feelings that I have right now. Yeah. Um, being that I also have three two bail members who are serving life sentences. Oh wow. Um, I'll repeat. And, I'll repeat. Sorry. 
So I think I, I struggle personally um, with like scriptures that may come to mind um, and trying to figure out, like trying to understand um, God sometimes. If I'm really, if I'm, if I'm we have a seminary student in the room who is sharing um, that she has two family members with life sentences uh, as a seminary student um, and a person of faith. She's struggling to think through scriptures that come to mind, and she's just framing the question about, you know, how, how does God fig figure into this? So we just have some honesty being expressed in the room here at Princeton. Thank you for sharing those, those thoughts. And the comment here is that the church does need to do a lot more. So I think, you know, Diane, you're you're speaking both as a, a minister of the church, but you're also provoking and, and questioning the privilege of the church. And I think that's a really um, helpful posture to have. And we have a professor who has a comment here. So let me just repeat it for the audience. So Professor Casey Choi was uh, really... A, a kind of commiserating with Diane's critique of Americanism, the culture of middle classism, and has asked the, the penance question, what do, what do Americans need to uh, pay penance for, Asian, Asian Americans in particular, those within the church? And I think, D Diane, you caught some of the questions. So yes, feel free I did. To okay, I'll be fast, because um, I, I want to make sure that we pray. Thank you, Professor, for that, that question. Um, the way you vote, uh, how the, the, the worship team, what, what kinds of um, prayers they lift up, um, what kinds of sermons are preached every Sunday or through Bible study, uh, who you choose for your exegesis in commentary. Man, uh, when I was at Fuller and we were, the majority of our required reading were um, European or European men, uh, I would read Howard Thurman, Sum Chan Ra, Gustavo Gutierrez, you feel me? So like, I think um, there are choices we make in how we interpret scripture that gets fed into the, the, um, the sermon. So really quick, this is what I would suggest church groups, Bible study groups, youth ministry groups, um, watch the documentary, Free Cho So Lee, have a conversation. Watch the documentary 13th by Ava DuVernay. I tried to do that at my church. They said I couldn't do it, so I did it in my living room instead. Uh, watch our show, From Number to Name, which shows uh, some of the stories that we've mentioned already in that photo. Watch the five-part series on Asian Americans so you could learn your own darn history, because some of us have been spoon-fed, at least in California, a narrative through a Eurocentric or uh, Eurocentric lens, because most of the publications come out of uh, Peterson Publication, which is based in Texas. Uh, read the new Jim Crow as a book study. Work that out. Work that out. You know, there's some there's some amazing literature out there that that would stir up all kinds of theological questions. Hey, man, read the autobiography of Malcolm X. He is not a violent anti-white person. He 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 humbly analyzes his own journey um, from street to prison to add to, to being a revolutionary. The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Black Liberation Theologian, James Cone, mind blowing and, and it'll, it'll 
we have to reckon with a lot of what we've internalized as Asians, uh, white proximity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, doing Christian Ethics from the Margins by Miguel de la Torre will also, um, um, I think, stir up some, some um, thoughts that maybe the church and, and um, seminarians might want to wrestle with. All right, that's enough on that. Let's, let's, um, I think that's, that's enough. I think so, Diane, I see your slide. Um, why don't you close us in prayer? And I think our time will be up afterwards. So please lead us in prayer. Uh, as we pray, I'm, I invite all of you to see a face. And if you don't know someone who's doing time, think about Billy's face. Think about Toby and Mr. Lee in the photo I shared. And as you reflect on these faces, see the face of Christ. So let's take a deep breath together. Lord of justice, Lord of mercy, Lord of liberation. We entrust all of our thoughts and feelings back to you. We will wrestle with our internalized isms and lay them at the cross. There's no place for these things. I ask that each person here who has been stirred up, that they take time this evening to pray, to reflect, to pivot, to, to reconsider certain kinds of relationships with people that they think they're afraid of. I pray that you will instill in us a courage that overcomes fear and replaces it with gracious courage and a loving justice. We ask for your mighty intervention as we continue to fight systemic structural racism, poverty, Lord, violence, the ways that people profit off the backs of our sisters, brothers, and siblings. We ask for your mighty intervention for that to stop. And we pray that we can stand in the gap and find ways to speak boldly, even if we're the only voice in the room. We thank you, Jesus, for this time, for Billy's testimony, for Professor David's vision of this conversation. We thank you for each soul that showed up today. May your light shine brightly, and may this evening be filled with tender blessings. We pray these things in your very perfect name. Assalamu alaikum, ashe, and amen. Let me also just um, say another word of prayer as I feel led to. Gracious God, I just um, thank you for my brother, Billy. I thank you for um, the peace that you've given him through meditation. Thank you for his courage in bearing his story and sharing it with all of us strangers. And I do pray that we might have a chance to sit face to face and to listen to one another and I thank you so much for our dear sister, Diane. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for endowing her with spiritual authority to speak truth, um, to shine a light on those who, whose stories are not well known. And Father, I pray for API Rise in this organization that you would continue to give them a platform to share these stories, to shine a light on the injustices of our incarceral system, and for people of faith especially those in churches, to be awoken to um, 
to follow through on some of the practical suggestions that Diane that Diane has mentioned. And we pray all these things in Christ's strong name. Amen. Amen. Thank, you. Thank you, everyone, on the Airmeet platform. Thank you for joining us. And until um, next time, have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.